Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Good afternoon from Boston. Welcome to the forum from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard University. I'm Peter Thompson. I'm the environment editor at the public radio program, The World, from Public Radio International and WGBH. And I'll be moderating today's panel. Today, we're talking about the future of food, how we might feed 9 billion people as climate change disrupts our food sources and our distribution systems. Our event is presented jointly with PRI's The World and WGBH. It's part of the Andalo series on current science controversies. Our panelists today, starting on my immediate right, are Gary Adamkowitz. He's an assistant professor of environmental health and exposure disparities at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Margaret Walsh, she's a senior ecologist at the Climate Change Program Office at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Calestas Juma, professor of practical Professor of the Practice of International Development at the Harvard School, Harvard Kennedy School, and co-chair of the high-level panel on emerging, emerging technologies at the African Union, and down at the far end, fresh from taking, uh, from talking at the Nobel Week Dialogue in Stockholm, as well as having just heard Patti Smith sing Bob Dylan's "A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall" <laughs> at the Nobel Awards, which must have been somewhat surreal. Uh, Caleb Harper, he's the principal investigator and director of the Open Agriculture Initiative at the MIT Media Lab. Uh, today's program will run about an hour. It'll include a brief Q&A toward the end. You can email your questions to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. You can also participate in a live chat that's happening on the forum site right now. To get things going, we wanted to play a short video that the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations made for 2016 World Food Day. So we're going to start with just some opening comments from our panels, starting just to my right, moving on down. Gary, mm -hmm. big picture. Mm -hmm. What are your big concerns as you look at the challenge of feeding the world? So, so I think there are, uh, this is a really big topic, a really big conversation, an important conversation to have. I think there's some facts that I think shape this conversation. One is that there are, right now there are more than 7 billion people on the planet. Uh, by the time someone born today in the U.S. reaches voting age, there are likely to be another one billion people. 
most of those people will live in cities. How do we feed that population is an important question. And how do we do that keeping an eye on sustainability, affordability, and equity? Uh, the current f global food system, I think, also leaves some things to be desired. Uh, it doesn't feed or nourish uniformly as a species. I think uh, it's been said that we're overfed and undernourished. So at the same time, we have 800 to 900 million people worldwide not getting proper nutrition. We live in a country that is probably, you might call, overfed, even though not everyone receives all the nutrition they need. Uh, so that's a significant cost. There's, we also waste 30 to 40 percent of our food globally. That's a crime. That's a, a really sad state of affairs. We also have a global f food system that has significant effects on the environment. So whether it's water quality, water scarcity, uh, other issues. But climate change is probably the biggest place where our global food system is having some effect. Everyone needs to understand that our daily consumption globally is closely linked to our consumption of other things, energy and resources, and we need to evaluate that, especially since we're wasting food. Uh, climate change, in a way, is also biting back. Uh, so this, uh, we're seeing the effects of climate change on global food production. You don't need to look farther than the droughts, the recent droughts in California, to see how that could play out. Um, the other issue, I think, when people talk about climate change and carbon footprints of any industry, including agriculture, uh, a lot of times we talk about where food is produced, but I think the important question is probably more than where, is what are we producing, what are we consuming, and how is it being produced? So conventional ag, conventional production, our global food system probably needs a tweaking. Um, a two th 2013 UN report estimated that globally the livestock sector is responsible for 14% of all greenhouse gas emissions. As a planet, we probably should consume uh, fewer foods uh, related to livestock, and that's also probably good for our global health. Uh, and this is not just about the sources of pollution, but also the sinks. So for climate change, it's not just about the energy we're consuming in our food system, but we're also deforesting. So we're removing some of the most important sinks globally. So I think uh, there are a lot of challenges on the table. There's nothing simple about this. And so how do we, going forward, fulfill demand while mitigating the effects of our current global system? What are the policies, technologies, approaches that we need to uh, embrace to meet this challenge while trying to provide food security for all? This is a major global problem that we need to wrestle with and fi find the right methods. Great. Wonderful table setter for discussion for the next uh, 50 minutes or so. Uh, Margaret Walsh, you've co-written a report called Climate Change, Global Food Security, and the U.S. Food System. It's tried to take a comprehensive view of the impacts of climate change on the world's food security. What's the bottom line you saw in that about impacts here in the U.S.? Sure thing. Thanks. So um, the first, the big picture is that we've made great progress on food security. In the last 25 years, we've gone from 19% of the world that was undernourished to 11%. And that's, that's one of humanity's greatest accomplishments, and we should be very proud. But given that, what are we doing here, right? Well, today we have about 800 million people in the world who are undernourished. Um, by some estimates, we have more than 2 billion who receive insufficient micronutrients in their diet. 
and we're wasting somewhere between a quarter and half of the food that we produce. In 2050, we're going to have more people, they're going to need more food, and we're going to have to accomplish this while the underlying conditions for production are changing. So the question is, can we continue to make progress on food security in a changing climate? Now, we know that food production is a mandatory prerequisite for food security, and we know a number of things. We know a great many things about the sensitivities of the production system um, to climate. So, for example, a heat spike during the pollination phase of a crop can destroy a crop in half a day, right? But we also know that food production alone is insufficient for achieving food security. Things like food prices, um, food affordability, food safety, distribution, um, these all matter every bit as much as food production does. So how we process food, how we package food, how we store food, uh, how we transport it and trade it, how we buy it and sell it, how we consume it, and even how we waste it, all of these things play a part. And together, we call those things the food system. And how you manage the food system determines your food security outcomes. Now, some food systems are very complicated. Some are much simpler. Um, but all of them have vulnerabilities. So things like uh, cooling requirements for produce taken from the field can change under higher temperatures. Your packaging may need to change in order to avoid spoilage. Your refrigeration along transportation um, those needs may change. Your distribution systems may, um, may become more difficult to maintain if there are uh, more transportation disruptions. So those are a few examples. Now, what does this mean for the United States? Uh, well, the United States is a major food exporter and a major food importer. We're the world's largest or the world's second largest in both of those in any given year. So uh, that Changes in that whole system affect things like food choices, uh, they affect food prices, they affect livelihoods in the United States. Their uh, transportation infrastructure, both domestically and with our trading partners, becomes of paramount importance. Things like sea level rise and storm surge can disrupt shipping. So that matters. Um, private companies are thinking a lot about their sourcing, where their you know, raw food materials come from. They're thinking about the continuity of their supply chains, and they're thinking about the location of their facilities. The United States is also a major source of agricultural research and technologies. Um, we're going to hear more about that today um, that, that improve food security all around the world. And the United States is a source of a great deal of food assistance around the world. And as the climate changes, those needs are likely to change as well. So um, in sum, on the whole, the United States produces a lot of food and will continue to produce a lot of food even in a changing climate. However, um, we must still contend with the consequences of climate change as they play out through the globally integrated food system. Excellent. So before we move on down to our last two speakers, we're going to take a uh, turn to another video briefly. We've heard that climate change is affecting food supplies everywhere, but of course farmers in the developing world are particularly vulnerable. So we wanted to take a couple of minutes to hear now from farmers from 
two countries in the developing world, India and Kenya. The clip is from the Research Program on Climate Change, Agriculture, and Food Security at CGIAR, which is otherwise known as the Consortium of International Agricultural Research Centers. Climate change is a business that we have to do Okay, back to our panel. Calestas Juma, you're the principal investigator of the Agricultural Innovation in Africa project. What can you tell us about how climate change is affecting food production in developing countries like India, uh, but also in Africa? where you focus on. Thank you, Peter. I think that the impact of climate change on agriculture is actually understated uh, because most of the studies that we see focus on yields of specific crops, but they rarely include the decisions of farmers in light of climate change. So if you have take the case of Brazil, for example, where farmers have two croppings a year, when faced with rising temperatures, they may reduce to one cropping a year instead of two. And that is a significant reduction in their output, which is independent of the reduction in yields. Uh, in some other cases, they may decide, in fact, to reduce the acreage uh, because it's no longer economically uh, efficient for them to be farming large tracts of land when they're not earning very much out of it. Uh, if you shift to areas that, that are dry uh, or arid, say in, uh, in the African, in the case of Africa, farmers may just simply abandon farming altogether uh, in face of climate change. And what's evident in many places is that the impacts are starting to occur much faster than uh, agricultural research institutes are breeding new new varieties. And when you get to a situation like that, the uncertainty created among farmers that they may not get seed that are suitable uh, in light of the changing ecological conditions, farmers will just abandon agriculture altogether. So I think what's likely to happen is uh, not only the magnitude of the impact is likely to be larger, but the intensity of it and the shortening of time frames where we're going to see large-scale abandoning of agriculture, especially the dry and arid areas of the world. So, so I think that the, the challenges are much more serious than, than we think if we include the decisions that farmers are likely to make in light of climate change. Okay, we'll come back to all of this for now to the far end of the table and it's appropriate because Caleb Harper, you're sort of the outlier here. You're from the media lab at MIT, not usually associated with questions of agriculture. Um, 
you run something called the Open Agriculture Initiative. What is it? What are you doing? I've been described. Why are you here? Yeah, I've been <laughs> described as the weirdo of a group of weirdos in the Media Lab, which is pretty like high honor uh, for me, frankly, uh, given the span of my colleagues. Um, so, you know, we've heard on the panel a, a lot about the kind of panacea of food crisis, and I think if everyone in the audience thought, "What does food crisis mean?" You'd, you'd be thinking maybe too much food, too little food, agricultural runoff, creating algae blooms, supply chains, attenuation of nutrition, urbanization, farmland being taken from farmers. That land was taken from a rainforest. It goes kind of on and on, and I think we've had that debate for the last 15 years. And it's somewhat disempowering to put up all of these things that are wrong and then try to solve for them either individually or collectively. For my work, I tried to ground it on a couple simple things. One of those is through our work with, with retail partners in the U.S., I found out what do you think the average age of an apple is in a grocery store in the U.S. from the date it was picked till the date it got in your mouth? Two months, six months, 14 months. The average age of an apple in a grocery store, 14 months. By that point, it's been harvested, waxed, put in cold storage, drawn down the CO2, drawn down the O2. It was actually brilliant for getting people an apple every day. But what happened in the process is we lost 90% of the antioxidants of that apple. And I don't think that it was known that that was what was going on. So that's just a real clear example of we have a very centralized system that did, see, did feed a billion people. And the question in the 70s was, how do we feed all of these people? I think our question now is how do we do that more sustainably, more effectively, more resource optimization. And so we are going to begin to see decentralization where it makes sense. The second one is actually I had the, the privilege of, of speaking with Secretary Vilsack and he shared with me a study that blew my mind. So it was a study of Americans uh, support or opposition to government policy and food. And it was all of the things we expect and debate about, you know, tax on sugared soda and the like. They threw in a control question and it said, Mandatory labeling on food containing DNA. Thank you for laughing. Callistus was first. The other one should follow. Everything that was once alive contains DNA. And 80% of the American population would support mandatory labeling of food containing DNA. How are we going to have an intellectual and effective conversation on genetically modified, on CRISPR, on gene drive, on daisy chain, all of the new technologies and tools that could be world solution or could be a world problem if half of us don't know or 80% of us don't know there's DNA in our food? So I think, you know, it goes a little bit further. The average age of a farmer in the United States, 58. 2% of us involved in farming. But that's not just us. I had the privilege of speaking with Kofi Annan on the subject, and he asked me what I was working on, how it would apply. I asked him how it would apply in the subcontinent. And he said, half of our population under 18. 80% don't want to be farmers. They've seen the life of their parents, their grandparents. They're moving towards the cities. How do you reignite an interest in the youth in agriculture? And of course, this extends to many other places in the world. So I think we need to be talking openly about science and technology, its already existent relationship heavily in our food chain, and then where that next generation of innovators is going to come from. And I think the last topic that needs to be heavily thought about and discussed is intellectual property in food. You know, maybe a new policy needs to be that any government support of any program needs to create open source data. It needs to create a body of knowledge that is not owned by any organization and it needs to be digitized. So going forward we build something like the human genome, a project across cultures, across continents with 10,000 researchers that made fundamental advancements in science through open intellectual property. 
Okay, I guess we're going to get a little taste of uh, a bit more of what you do um, with a video from the Open Agriculture Initiative, and, and we're going to use that to start opening up the conversation to everybody. Um, so we'll roll this, and we'll come back and talk a bit about technology. Okay, so that's just a little taste of what the Open Agriculture Initiative at MIT is doing. Um, so I want to open up the conversation uh, between the four of you, and let's start on, on that issue of technology. Obviously, there are lots of factors that are going to affect our ability to feed the planet, uh, 9 billion or however many people we're going to be uh, faced with and part of a global community of in the next 20, 30 years. Uh, technology is just one, but it's a huge piece of it. So let's start the conversation about technology, start down there with Caleb. You are the tech guy here. Uh -oh. So um, what do you think are some of the most important frontiers in technology that will help us get through this bottleneck? Oh my gosh, that is such a big question. Um, and there was a lot more of that video, so we're not quite so growing, the, you know, I don't know, egocentric and growing the future of food. There was a lot more, but technology-wise, I think there's a lot of fronts that are interesting to me personally. Um, plant microbiomes, uh, root microbiomes, there's a lot of great work going on on that. Um, you know, s the ability to produce uh, more healthy microbiomes from soil that was recently depleted or over time depleted. Um, you know, even synthetic microbes that are being developed now to increase plant production, I think is a, is a fascinating area. Um, you know, agricultural data across all kinds. So whether you're talking about infield data that's being gathered from satellite images or from drones or from microsatellites or from infield sensing, um, being able to articulate that data in new ways, I think there are a lot of groups working on that which describes our environment. Of course, my side is working more on describing the plant. So understanding phenotypic expression in a, in a much more robust way. Um, machine learning, artificial intelligence being applied to huge data sets, um, new correlations that we're learning about all the environmental factors that produce what we, what we care about, which is nutrition and flavor and color and size and texture. A lot of that is, in, you know, 90% of that is influenced by the phenomena or the climate around the object. So being able to use advanced algorithms to search through and say, hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't have corn planted only in the corn belt, or maybe we should have legumes planted in part of the Corn Belt that has a microclimate that's more suitable for legumes that a, par a farmer could be profitable with. Um, 
Let's see, plant microbiome obviously relates human microbiome, the research going on on that. And of course, we have to talk about GMOs, CRISPRs, uh, CRISPR-Cas9, and now CRISPR-Cas9 is even farther. It's now gone into gene inheritance. And so the ability to make an edit in a gene and have that gene edit taken forward in the next generation. And so these tools exist. I think they're not a lot talked about because it's so scary to most people. Um, but we need, to, we need to have that conversation in open dialogue. And, and you've got this thing called the food computer, which involves some of what you're talking about here, but with some specific applications. So, yeah. um, kind of the way that this all started for me is I went to Fukushima after the disaster, and I was not working in food. I'm an architect and an engineer. Um, I had been designing data centers and hospitals, and I saw a landscape that reminded me of my childhood. I came from an agricultural and a grocery family. Um, it was a post-apocalyptic apocalyptic version of my childhood. It was the breadbasket of Japan. It was now salted from the tsunami. It now had fear of radiation contamination. And the youth had left for Sendai and Tokyo a long time ago. Japan was at that point Im importing 70% of its own food. So I had this idea, what if you don't have the climate you need, instead of going to another country and chasing climate around the world, which is mostly what we do, the Californian farmer becomes a Mexican farmer, China's now the largest landholder in Brazil, a lot of the food for the Middle East is produced in Africa, instead of being slave to climate, could we not build or fabricate a new climate? And so that's what I had been doing for data centers and hospitals. So I thought, okay, let's, let's try this idea out. Came home, started hacking it. And you know, we've produced things called personal food computers that have now been built in 20 countries on six continents in the last six months. Um, it's not about producing a lot of food. It's a little box that creates a climate inside. It's about teaching people about food again. It's about reaching that next generation. We scale it up in what you saw at the tail end of the video, what we call food servers uh, and food data centers. What underpins it all is what we call the Open Phenome Project. So this is categorizing all those variables that most affect the things that we care about, the biochemical expression in food. All of that being open source is something that we're incredibly committed to. So we're following the trend of Facebook open sourcing their AI. We're following the, the trend of, of Elon Musk open sourcing te Tesla patents, of Apple open sourcing their app developer language. The future of this kind of discovery is going to depend on huge networks that produce trillions of data points and trillions of images to use any of the great tools that we have today. Those data sets do not exist currently except for in private companies. So starting to build them as a public commons or a public asset is a big part of our work. We could have a whole panel on that. We could have a whole conference on that. Uh, but I want to move back this way at the table, uh, hear about some of the other uh, technological frontiers that some of you think are promising, are scary. Uh, <laughs> Kolestius, start with you. I, I think that uh, for parts of the world, particularly Africa, they, interestingly enough, the, the most significant technological frontiers are actually technologies we are very familiar with, just basic infrastructure. The reason why Africa can't feed itself is because of poor rural infrastructure. The challenge is how to design the 21st century inf infrastructure so that you take into account sustainability considerations. And it's really interesting to see, say, in a number of African countries, the use of solar irrigation so that people are tapping into emerging technologies to solve very fundamental, fundamental problems. Uh, countries that are starting to think about transportation drones to be able to move produce from remote areas without having to open those regions up with the basic railways and roads. 
Uh, and so what we have essentially today is a, a large pool of technological opportunities ranging from satellites down to sensors that are in fact being used even in very remote parts of Africa today uh, that make it possible to leapfrog from what we did last century with the Green Revolution and a very limited range of technological options uh, to a much larger pool. I think the challenge is going to be building up the human capabilities, uh, which is basically getting to train farmers uh, in a slightly different ways. Uh, it's one thing to have a mobile phone, but you cannot move rice from one location to another through a mobile phone. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to think about it slightly, slightly differently because pr moving food is about moving bulk. Uh, and so that's going to take a bit of creativity, but it's also go going to take a bit of a really significant investment in, in entrepreneurial activities. Young people don't flee farming, they flee poverty. So you have to make farming, in fact, uh, economically viable. And where this has happened, we've seen young people going back to farming because it's exciting, it's interesting. Uh, they can apply machine learning and artificial intelligence to monitoring the development of their crops. Uh, making it technological, dynamic, and entrepreneurial makes it possible for young people to get back into agriculture. So we, we need 21st century farmers. The analogy I kind of use usually is we need to do for 21st century agriculture in the way we dealt with uh, 19th century agriculture in this country with the building up, the establishment of land-grant colleges, that farms will become the colleges of the future. Uh, and we're starting to see elements of it uh, in many places where the most interesting activities are actually occurring uh, around farms. There are going to be different types of farms. There are going to be learning centers as opposed to being uh, classical, classical farms. And I think the work that's going on at MIT is already starting to indicate which way agriculture might actually go. Okay, Margaret Walsh, uh, refract this question, if you would, for us about technology through the lens of the USDA, or at least the current USDA. Uh, right. I, um, I don't know that I can represent the entire department, um, but I, I'd actually, uh, I think there's a whole discussion we could have on adaptation in this field. Um, I'll, I'll stick to the technology part of it, though, and I'll, I'll, I'd actually like to s step back a bit. Um, I, I think uh, just to acknowledge that, um, you know, the, in, agriculture was effectively invented about 10,000 years ago. And over that period of time, we've had a very stable, um, very unique, frankly, climate. And so, um, you know, now we are entering this period where things look very different uh, than, they've, than they've looked uh, throughout our experience with climate change. So. Farmers and ranchers are extremely innovative, um, but what we are seeing and what we are certainly what we're about to see looks very different than their experience, than their grandparents' experience, and then their grandparents' experience. And so, I just like to, um, you know, just step back so we can frame it that way to to just speak to the importance of um, uh, uh, of new information, new technologies, new ways of doing things. Um, and I think I'd like to leave the question of what those technologies might be to Caleb, because he's much better at answering them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's give Gary a chance mm -hmm. to weigh in, if, if you'd like, on this question. I, we've got lots of other questions we want to get to, so. 
Yeah, and I think the it's interesting the the technology and and uh, science question. You know, modern conventional agriculture is really the result of, you know, decades, centuries of accumulated knowledge. You know, the knowledge that every farmer has. You know, could fill textbooks, um, and there are a lot of questions recently that are connected to science and technology that are negative. You know, there's a, the whole debate about GMOs and and con, uh, synthetic chemicals being used on farms, but there is really, with every problem, there's an opportunity. And I think now, you know, what, where are we investing in learning about the best methods to do things better? And so how do we most effectively adapt to, to climate change? How do we think about moving con what is conventional to today? How do you make sustainable conventional, you know? And, we, we haven't really made enough of an investment nationally or internationally on really examining the best ways to minimize the long-term costs. I mean, Caleb was talking about the soil microbiome. You know, how does conventional ag uh, negatively affect the long-term health of soil? And uh, if you look, you know, at COP21, they, they raise this issue about this you know, how much carbon is contained in healthy soil. You know, we really need to look at how conventional systems are doing us a disservice long term. Um, so uh, there's a lot of great uh, opportunities here to embrace science, embrace, embrace technology, but we need to make investments uh, in research and also supporting farmers who want to do the right thing or producers who want to do the right thing. So there's even a place for like small business loans for folks who want to do the right thing. Um, okay, we've got a whole list of questions to, to get through here. In about seven minutes before we turn to questions from the audience and our, question, our folks online, um, this may not be the best place to put in this question, but I want to be sure we get to it. So I'm going to use my um, moderator's prerogative and just invite the elephant in the room into the room, and that is Donald Trump and the Donald Trump administration, and how that is going to change everything that you all do, or whether it, you think it will change everything that you all do. Obviously, the biggest issue is that they fundamentally don't believe in climate change, or they don't believe in uh, the serious risks of, of, of big changes from climate change. Um, and they are in a position to affect policy on that around the world. Um, also, they tend not to be focused too much on innovation, and they seem to be looking back more toward like trying to recreate some kind of, of picture of the United States of 40, 50 years ago in industry and agriculture, that doesn't seem to fit in well with what you guys are thinking we need moving forward. I'll just throw it open. We'll start at this end, or whoever wants to raise their hand first, or we well, can all just I'll, sit here I'll, and I'll, I'll just start. Uh, I, I mean, I would say that there, there are some, um, um, some debates on climate change that I think the scientific com community feel are over. Right, that that it that it is, it's real, and and uh, we are globally contributing to it. But I think you know when when we think about agriculture, it's easy for people I think to imagine how uh, weather extremes affect crops, and you can imagine what a scorched field looks like or a flooded field. But there are really other effects that are undeniable, and we can point to them. And so you know a few years ago due to droughts in the Midwest, uh, the Mississippi was at a level where you couldn't move barges up and down the Mississippi. You know, that's not about a scorched field of corn, right? There are some real 
uh, effects of climate change that aren't the first things that come to you, your mind, but affect commerce. So I think as a community, I think we need to call out these, these examples that are really undeniable. And so, you know, a stranded barge is a real issue. And so we need to accept the fact that that was related to these weather extremes um, and, and what, what's happening to the to uh, weather and climate locally and, and globally. Margaret, I imagine you're in a bit of a tight spot on this in terms of <laughs> being a, an employee of the Department of Agriculture and uh, in this transition between administrations and between worldviews, really, because that's what's changing here. What, what can you say? I have, I'm sorry, Peter, I have no inside information <laughs> at all. Um, the, it, you know, I, I can't really speculate as to what the new policies might be. I, I just don't know. Um, I know that they are committed to making um, for a smooth transition, and so they're working through their process. But beyond that, I, I know no more than you. And you don't have a new Secretary of Agriculture yet, as far as I know, right? As far as I know yeah. as well, yeah. <laughs> okay. We'll move it on down the line. Calestis. I, I actually don't know how an African animal ended up being a symbol of American political parties. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so you said the elephant, the <laughs> elephant in the room. Uh, and uh, I, I think there's been a, a real turning. The, the Copenhagen was a turning point for Africans in regard to climate change, uh, where it became clear to the Africans, to African leaders, that they needed to deal with this issue not so much as a global issue debating on who is responsible for it, but focusing more on the impacts. Uh, because some of the impacts of climate change are essentially similar to the impacts of drought, which they have a long history of dealing with. Uh, and so, so I think that African, African leaders are approaching climate change as an act of housekeeping, in, irrespective of what might happen in the various capitals. A long history of international negotiations has taught Africans not to expect too much from international uh, agreements. And so what I see happening, uh, in fact, after you had Copenhagen, then you had Durban, and then you had Cancun, and African leaders really didn't go to Cancun. They actually ran their own meeting on climate change when everybody else was in, in Cancun. So I think that they are going to proceed in exploring how to adapt to climate change independent of what happens in the White House. Caleb, a lot of what you're talking about is investment in new technology and in, and in new ways of thinking about things and new ways of, of approaching problems. Um, as I said, I mean, it seems with the Trump administration, we're turning back toward looking at old ways of, of trying to organize our society and spend our money. How do you feel that this change might affect what you're trying to do, what you think needs to be done. <coughs> so I obviously can't speak for what's going to happen, but I can speak for my experiences thus far. Um, you know, I don't think it's a controversial thing to support STEM education. I think that STEM education is squarely on the agenda of every political party. Um, so when Calistus is talking about next generation farmer, I'm talking about next generation farmer. I think the support for STEM, STEAM education as applied to content areas like food will continue to grow. Um, whether that's a government supported effort or that's a grassroots effort, it's already happening. Um, so that next generation of engineer, of scientist, of mathematician, of physicist, 
what are they going to apply their knowledge to? And this is a pressing problem that all young people are interested in. Like, all I had to do was put up a flyer that said, do you want to build the next digital physical Farmville? And I had like 30 students in my office the next day. So the, the desire is there. They don't exactly know where to interface, but I think supporting those programs is likely to continue. Um, you know, I did have the chance to meet with the deputy director of the Global Food Security Division of the State Department uh, last week, which was, of course, started under Secretary Clinton. Uh, doesn't know if it will exist in a couple weeks. Doesn't have a 2017 budget yet. But he was hopeful in his conversations with me that actually agriculture and agricultural technologies is squarely on the agenda of the Republican Party. Whether it's true or not, don't know. I, I'm not in Washington, but that's the best information I have to go on. There is no denying that big companies, all the big food companies, are in trouble. So when you have the big five taking money out of their R&D funds at massive rates and putting it into venture capital funds, when you have, uh, you know, Every major food company now doing acquisitions in the space to try to build trust, to try to build transparency, to try to build back, build back a relationship with a consumer that frankly says, I don't believe you, no matter what you say to me. There's no way that any government cannot confront that issue. And so I think it is driven a lot by uh, that type of change. So I, I, hope, I hope that it will support uh, that progressive agenda. We have questions coming from the audience. We do. I know we have a lot of themes to discuss, but we have a lot of people sending in questions. So I'll just share a few from online here. Um, By the way, this is Lisa Myritz, who runs this whole program. Thank you, Peter. Um, so here's a question from Bashir Sumar from Western Sydney University in Australia. Can you please shed some light on GM foods? Is there any reason to suggest they may be harmful or not as nourishing? We've had a number of questions come in about GMOs, so maybe we can address that with this one. We should certainly be able to solve that in two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Any thoughts on GMOs in so, there? Uh, maybe I'll start. Okay. I'll just, uh, so um, this is always uh, an issue that, that comes up, and um, you know, fear of GMO, it's different than fear of DNA. Um, but uh, the... Um, but seriously, the, uh, we actually don't have a lot of evidence that shows that, um, that GMO foods are, are bad for our health. And that's, that's, that's a statement. I say that as a researcher. You know, but there have been times in public health where I could have said the same thing about some things that are bad, right? So that's a, just a factual statement that we haven't seen a lot of evidence of that. The place where it's uh, some of the GMO systems that you know, I have some concern over are the, are the ones where you've sort of married uh, a variety of a crop with the, with the use of pesticides, so the, the Roundup Ready model. And so some of the, the, the use of those pesticides in those systems, you know, we haven't necessarily deemed all the pesticides used in those systems as healthy for the environment or healthy for us. But, um, but there isn't uh, a, a body of evidence that shows that GMOs have been unhealthy for us. Take it one step further and say I just mm -hmm. came back from the Nobel Prize and 170 Nobel laureates signed a petition saying that there are no adverse human health effects based on genetic modification. You'll also hear that from Walter Willett, who's a colleague in this department that uh, is, you know, 20 years and 30 years on the subject, but it's much more complicated than that. So as you spoke about, obviously the resistance to pesticides, we're dumping pesticides because we have plants that can withstand them. That is a bad thing. The intellectual property of the GMO is also a bad thing. I want to 
know more about them, but I can't because it's protected from me. So when you're hiding someone from something like that from people, of course they're going to distrust you. But you have to take it to a nuanced level and say there's cisgenic and there's uh, transgenic. And see, this is already where you lose most people. But everything you've ever eaten was GMO. Everything. We've been selecting for traits for 15,000 years. Corn does not look like it looks today because of natural methods. Farming is not natural. If it was, plants would line up in rows and they would be all the things that we wish to eat and they would support society. So we need a, new, a better conversation on what natural means and it needs to be driven by saying, hey, cisgenic modification of crops is just what we've been doing in Mendelian genetics for a while. We're at now able to do it much, much faster. What do we think about that? Transgenic? Okay, taking it from one genome to another genome, maybe we need to think a little bit more about that before we deploy it. And they, that's what Congress decided. But I think it's, you know, it's DNA. You don't add DNA to yourself. You eat it, you pass it, and you absorb the biochemicals that that DNA created, called nutrition, flavor, and all the other things. We should be much more concerned by the quality of nutrition that we're eating than what modifications have necessarily been made. Clusters, Margaret, you want to quickly weigh in? Yeah, just let, let me share kind of uh, the perspective that's emerging from the African continent on this because this is where we've had the fiercest opposition to, to GMOs. Uh, and what seems to have emerged over a 10-year period, actually 20-year period, is that maybe there should be a sequencing of the introduction of genetically modified crops, starting with fiber. People have no concerns with genetically modified cotton. And then you can move to feed for livestock. Then you can start to think about fuel for biofuels. And down the line, you can start to talk about food. By that time, you have built up sufficient familiarity with genetic modification that people are know more about it and are likely to welcome it. Because it's not an issue of science. It's an issue of public perceptions. Mm -hmm. And we know for the fact that the more science you throw at consumers, the more they dig in. So facts have been, in fact, uh, throwing facts at consumers has worsened the debate rather than improved it. Well, I think we've had a great discussion of the, the technical, the scientific topics on this. I would just go back to my previous comments on technology and, and just remind everyone that in terms of climate, past is not prologue. Um, things are going to look very different, and so we need um, many options available to us in order to address this issue of food security moving forward in a changing climate. Lisa, Thanks. another question. We, we have a lot of questions coming in on our live chat and Facebook, so I encourage everyone to go on our live chat after this is over. We'll put them all up there, because we only have time for a few. Um, this is from Dana Abetti. You've discussed the climate benefits, not to mention health benefits, of shifting to a more plant-based diet. What are your thoughts on how to make this shift more quickly than we are? This, uh, I always start this by saying, I myself am not a vegan or a vegetarian, uh, but, but omnivore, even omnivores want to do better. Uh, I think, um, yeah, how do we do this uh, quickly? And I and sh should say this mostly comes from uh, the perspective, you know, given, given the, the issues around food security globally, there are different conversations that are most pressing and relevant depending on where you are. So for middle and high income co countries, I think there, um, everyone needs to be at the table. The com consumer is part of this system. But I think 
I don't want to uh, let everyone else off the hook. So how do, how do um, governments su support better choices? How do NGOs work as part of that system? But the consumer demand is definitely part of that. And I think we need to find better ways of shifting, telling that story, shifting that needle. Um, you know, Meatless Mondays seem like a pretty low bar for the U.S. I think you can, you can, for most people in the U.S., you can, you can go a little further than that. And I think when you look at the connections to our health, the connections to environmental, thing, environmental metrics, uh, there's no doubt that collectively we should probably uh, be moving toward a diet that is uh, less reliant on livestock-derived foods. In terms of how to do that quicker, I'm, I don't really, if, I'd love to hear if anybody else has, you know, how to really move that needle. Um, you know, the, the place where I mostly discuss those issues is on the consumer side, and, and we're moving in that direction, but it, it also feels sometimes like a conversation of privilege, you know, and, and how do we, you know, for folks who have the means to make all the choices that they, they can in, in the modern U.S. environment. Well, uh, sure. So okay. um, USDA's perspective is a little bit different, but, I, but I'd like to just sort of, again, expand the conversation and step back a, ba a bit. Uh, about a third of the world's land area is covered in uh, a, a land type that is unsuitable in production terms for anything other than livestock mm -hmm. production. Um, there have been some some terrible <laughs> experiments with trying to convert these lands into croplands, and they've they've been environmentally disastrous. And so, you know, within the context of this discussion about food security, taking a third of the land area out of production, um, you know, maybe we want to think about that. And maybe we also can we do things smarter? I think I think a lot of people think that we can, and I think a lot of ranchers are moving toward that as well. Um, there are uh, mixed systems that have both crops and livestock. And so you feed the crops to the livestock and you use the manure to fertilize the crops. Um, when grain prices are very low, you can sell the animal products. When um, grain prices are high, you can sell the crops directly and that helps uh, to even out livelihoods uh, around the world, which, uh, food, which contributes to food access, which is a central tenet of food security. So I just, I just like to broaden the discussion a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I think this idea of feeding the world is really a 20th century idea. It seems to me today that the, the focus is on nourishing the world. And if you start to think about it that way, the, the focus shifts to nutrition. And when the focus shifts to nutrition, you start to find out that the range of crops, many of which are traditional and indigenous, available to communities worldwide, significantly expands. Historically, what we've tended to do is to select for yield, mm -hmm. not for nutritional content. And that narrowed down basically to having very the, the bulk of our calorific intake coming from a very small number of crops. And so I would say that the way to really frame this is around nutrition, and that expands the base, and that base is largely crop-oriented. Crop uh, and might not necessarily, I don't want to aff offend people who uh, think that if you remove beef from their diet, that will be the end of the world. But I think it offers more opportunities for getting protein without having to force people to give up uh, some of their lifestyles. 
So it's really an issue of framing. So I, I would say for the 21st century, we really should be talking about nourishing the world, not necessarily feeding the world. I'll take the meat real quick. So um, just to go off the walls, like uh, everyone knows the world is in a dearth of protein. We know that that protein uh, is not going to come from animal products. It is largely going to come from plant-based products. So one of the biggest ways to contribute to this is to make plant-based products taste better. So if you're going to take plant proteins, start to make new products uh, that are affordable, that are a health alternative, um, and make them available and people will take them. We see that with the Impossible Meat. I mean, it's not a great example, but come on, they're making a plant-based hamburger that tastes pretty good. I've eaten it. So I would eat it. Uh, the other one is um, cows convert energy at 30 calories in to one calorie out. Chicken, eight calories in, one calorie out. Fish, two calories in, one calorie out. So we don't have to just be talking about beef. We can also be talking about other animal proteins making it more efficient. If you want to go to the far future and what's already happening in New York and across the world, you're talking about cultivated meat. You're talking about not raising animal proteins with the bone, the ligament, the brain, the eyes, all the things that we don't eat. You can multiply cells in a control environment and create new products. They're doing leather and next will be meat. So I do think you'll see brewing. You know, you think it sounds new, but it's the oldest technology, fermentation and brewing. So fermenting cells, brewing cells, making new products will be a part of the future. And, and it sounds maybe a little weird, but, but it's already happening. Thank you for that. Um, speaking of sources of protein, we'll just take this last one. It's from Bob Rialt, Executive Director of the East Coast Shellfish Growers Association. The UN, FAO, and World Bank are projecting a 50 MMT shortfall in global seafood supply in 15 to 25 years, caused by the growth of the middle class in China and population growth. Where does seafood fit in the global protein picture, and what can we do to avoid a massive increase in seafood prices when supplies fail to meet demand? Start anywhere you like. <laughs> I'll just I'll just start by saying um, just sort of a, a agreeing with the problem. I don't I don't really have the solutions. I mean the the you know when you um, you know a lot of um, friends of mine who are who have been lifelong nutrition researchers. You know I think there are, there are a lot of pescatarians out there who see the that you know have moved away from uh, other forms of protein and and they, we know the value of, of of fish in our in our diet as well as a plant based approach so that that demand the looking forward at that demand curve there's no way that that we don't have we're we can't avoid that problem and that that curve is disturbing I will say though if you look around the world um, there are a lot of examples where uh, fish populations have been properly managed the person asking the question and, and probably knows this far more than than I do uh, but you know uh, there are models that have worked to manage uh, manage catches. The other thing we need to do is uh, move beyond uh, those those sources of, of fish. You know, the the fish that we all consume at high levels. So after it after salmon, tuna, and shrimp, your average American has you know eats very little of the other uh, catch that's out there, and so. We also we need to be making markets for other things that would have been considered bycatch, but are perfectly healthy, perfectly suitable uh, forms of protein for for our diets. So uh, I know we don't have time. No simple answers there. I, and it's Colossus wants to weigh in here. I, I think that uh, it's interesting because fishing is the last frontier of hunting. Mm -hmm. 
is a form of hunting. Terrestrially, we've moved from hunting to farming. And I think what's likely to happen, and it's already happening at a very rapid rate, is actually moving towards farming, fish farming, to supplement hunting. Uh, and there it has to open up all sorts of new possibilities, especially being able to do it in a sustainable, in a sustainable way. So, so, so I think hunting for food is something that is going to basically diminish significantly. Fisheries are a major source of, of uh, protein, of micronutrients, um, and of incomes for a number, of, for a great many people around the world. Um, they do face challenges, um, pulling, teasing out the climate-specific challenges um, can be a little difficult, but uh, we know that there are changes in acidity um, that affect the, the food web that the fish that we uh, associate with eating um, are being affected by. We know that there are changes in salinity. Um, how do we uh, manage markets and prices there? there. Um, I'm going to have to refer you to an economist because we've, we've gone outside my area of knowledge, but it's, it's, a, it's, a serious, um, it's, it's an area that needs serious consideration. I'd say it's indicative of that race to the bottom of caloric conversion. So of course we're going to go to, shift, uh, to fish. If you chase it to its natural conclusion, you'd get to where George Church told us our food's going to come from, which is cyanobacteria, because it's 90% photo-efficient organism. It's the most efficient organism on Earth mm. for creating things that we need. So we're all <laughs> going to be eating cyanobacteria. But I think on the fish side, I've already seen some pretty cool things where they're merging natural systems with man-made systems. Totally agree with Callistus. It's going towards farming. You will see genetically modified fish. We already see it in salmon. We're going to have to discuss if everybody likes it. But if that fish is making a more efficient conversion into proteins than other fish, they're going to be there. Um, I think it's Northrop Grumman or Lockheed has this project called Valella, where they have open water fisheries uh, that float around the ocean inside of giant orbs. And that may seem super weird to you, but if you dock fish in one place, you often ruin that place uh, because it's incredibly hard to manage a, an ecosystem of farm-raised fish that are both healthy for people to eat and also healthy for the environment. So I think we're going to use oceans to our advantage, but we're going to be farming in the oceans, not just running around after them. Okay, well, we've really just begun this conversation that could go on all day and all week. Um, one final take-home from each one of you. We want to get something nice and pithy that we can uh, pull together in one little quick video <laughs> to summarize everything we've talked about here today. I'll, I'll start. Uh, so, um, you know, going back to your question about what is looking forward, you know, that with the new administration, I think... I, I hope there can be agreement on the fact that there are certain elements of our food system that are not good for the economy and for the population and for society, right? So, in, you know, good business is a stable business. And th there are lots of examples here where climate change makes agriculture and makes our food system unstable. And so I think, I hope, I hope we can make investment on, uh, on those methods, those techniques, you know, the old, old school methods uh, can be relearned, and there is a science there. There is an opportunity for great technology, as, as, as folks have mentioned. So I hope there's a, an agreement on the fact that, uh, that climate change can disrupt a very important part of the global economy that both nourishes us, feeds us, but also is, is part of the, of the global uh, well-being of, of of business and governments and populations. Margaret. 
Sure. So my takeaway would be that climate change matters to, to food security and to agriculture. It matters to food production, but it matters across the food system. And because the food system is so globally integrated, it matters to American producers and American consumers, even as we will be producing quite a bit of food still. Colastus? I think the disruptions uh, arising from climate change in the food system are really going to make food security become national security questions. And that means that they will rise to the top of leadership concerns in various countries. I, how quickly they will be picked up by leaders is, is a really different matter. But it's going to become, I think, a question that should be addressed by the highest level possible uh, in governments, which brings us back to the, to the question about the elephant in the room, that we'll have to engage a lot more elephants in discussing these questions, not just one. And Caleb, you get the last word. And the opposite of the elephant is the mouse. And so I would say, you know, we're really talking about, I think one of the biggest problems in, in agriculture is the next one billion farmers. What are they going to be? Mechanical engineering farmers, electrical engineering farmers, data farmers, algorithm farmers, regular farmers. We're going to expand the definition of what farmer means. And it's going to go across all disciplines. Agriculture has be, gone very deep and very narrow. The next 20 years, we're going to see the networking of farming. And I think when we talk about that next 2 billion, 3 billion people, we should follow that up with what are they going to be? And maybe a billion of them are farmers and providing solutions in new food systems. Okay, well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for, which is very frustrating because this is an incredibly important conversation and, and there's so much to talk about. But uh, I want to thank all our panelists, Caleb Harper, Clustus Juma, Juma, excuse me, uh, Margaret Walsh and Gatter, Gary Abramowitz, excuse me, Gary Adamkowitz, Gary, Gary, <laughs> Gary, I'm much better with first names, sure. uh, and also to uh, Lisa Mirowitz and uh, the folks here at Harvard. Uh, that's it for this time. You can continue the conversation online at uh, the forum website, forum.hsph.org. I'm Peter Thompson from PRI's The World. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the Forum.